in Romania and in many Eastern European countries, there are so many orphans institutionalized that there isn't enough staff members to take care of them. The babies, often past toddler age, are still kept in diapers and placed in cribs because there's no other way to take care of them. They are lifted out to be fed, and they infrequently have their diapers changed. There's no real physical contact with other humans, especially any of the cuddling and holding that babies need to develop normally. They end up in semi-catatonic states and often die from a lack of human contact and relationship. This condition is called failure to thrive syndrome. The perils of a touchless society become even more apparent or became even more apparent in the early 1900s when Dr. Luther Emmett Holt, known as one of America's first and finest pediatricians, decided that parents were spoiling their children by cuddling and holding them too much. Good parents took notice and immediately followed his order, beginning a trend of hands-off parenting. Within just a few years, doctors across the nation started to notice a dramatic increase in infant deaths, particularly in seemingly healthy babies. It soon apparent it soon became apparent that these infants experienced failure to thrive simply because they were not getting enough human contact or human fellowship. You know, we need to understand that failure to thrive syndrome can happen in our spiritual lives. It can be avoided and it can be cured, but prevention doesn't happen by itself. You see, the key to avoiding this spiritual disease is through fellowship. But fellowship is much more than what you may think it is. So we've been going through a series on Christian disciplines, and today our focus is going to be on the discipline of fellowship. And I want you all to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is for us to have your word and to hear from it. We pray that you would bless it and your words alone be, be spoken and our hearts be prepared to receive with open arms. We pray for no distraction and for clarity, for we pray this in the most precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The first point I want to highlight is this. We have a restored 
relationship, a restored fellowship. In the New Testament, koinonia, which means fellowship, signifies having a share in something or sharing with someone in something or you could, stay, you could say participation in something or with someone. Mankind was never created to live in isolation. Never. We see, we see even in the Garden of Eden, the beginning of human existence, fellowship with God. A fellowship that was tainted, that was fractured by Adam and Eve's disobedience, the first humans. God and man could no longer, if I may say so, be in the same room. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All of humanity stands condemned. God who is so holy, who is so pure, who is so righteous and perfect, cannot fellowship with humanity that is stained and tainted with sin. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 says this, This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. However, the writer of the book of Hebrews makes this wonderful case and proclaims the wonderful testimony that fellowship with God once again exists and it exists only through Jesus Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews, written to the Jews, use a lot of Old Testament imagery and context to convey this powerful message. The author says, we have a restored fellowship. God in times past allowed limited fellowship through the people and nation of Israel, a specific nation out of all the nations in the world. But here, the believer today is given by God a tremendous welcome. The believer is invited to do something only the high priest of Israel could do. Have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We are invited into the holy of holies itself. To picture what this means, I'm going to use an illustration from John Phillips. And he says this. Imagine a Moabite of old, in the Old Testament times, gazing down upon the tents and tabernacle of Israel, from some lofty mountain height, attracted by what he sees. He descends to the plain and makes his way toward the sacred enclosure surrounding the tabernacle. It's a high wall of, of dazzling linen, which reaches over his head. He walks around it until he comes to the gate, where he sees a man. He says, uh, may I go in there, he asks pointing through the gate to where the bustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen. Who are you? demands the man suspiciously. Any Israelite would know he could go in there. I'm a man from Moab, the stranger replies. Well, says the man at the gate, I'm very sorry, but you cannot go in there. It's not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite, from any part in the worship of Israel until his 10th generation. The Moabite looks sad. What would I have to do to go in there, he asks. Oh, you would have to be born again, replies the gatekeeper. You would have to be born an Israelite. 
You would need to be born in any of the tribes, uh, Judah or, or Dan or perhaps Benjamin. Oh, I wish I had been born, of, born an Israelite of one of the tribes of Israel, the Moabite says. As he looks more closely, he sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice at the brazen altar and cle- cleansed himself at the brazen laver, go into the tabernacle's interior. Uh, what's in there? asks the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Oh, says the gatekeeper, that's the tabernacle itself. Inside there is a room containing a lampstand, a table, and an altar of gold. The man you saw is a priest. He will trim the lamp, eat of the bread upon the table, and burn incense to the living God upon the golden altar. Ah, sighs the man of Moab, I wish I were an Israelite so that I could do that. I should love to worship God in that holy place and help trim the lamp and to offer him some incense and to eat at the table. Oh no, says the man at the gate. Even I could not do that. To worship in the holy place, one must not only be born an Israelite, one must be born the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. He sighs again, I wish he says that I'd been born of Israel, of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. And gazing wistfully behind at, at the closed tabernacle doors, what else is in there? There's a veil, replies his informant. It's a beautiful veil, I'm told, which divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what is called, or we call the most holy place, the, the holy of holies. And now he's more interested. The Moabite asks, what's in the holy of holies? There's a sacred chest in there called the Ark of the Covenant, answers the gatekeeper. It contains certain holy memorials of our past. Its top is made of gold, and we call that the mercy seat because God sits there between the golden cherubim. You see that, that pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory of God. It comes to rest on the mercy seat. Again, a, long, a longing shadow on the face of the man. Oh, he says, if only I were a priest. I should love to have gone to the Holy of Holies and there gaze upon God and worship Him there in the beauty of His holiness. Oh no, says the man. You couldn't do that even if you were a priest. To enter into the most holy place, you'd have to be born a high priest. You'd have to be the high priest of Israel. Only He can go in there. Nobody else. Only He in all of Israel can enter the most holy place. Oh, If only I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. If only I had been born and called to be a high priest, I would go there in the Holy of Holies. Three times every day, I would go there as often as I could to worship God. The the gatekeeper looks at him and says, no, you couldn't do that even. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year and then only after the most elaborate of preparations and even then only for a little while can he worship. Sadly, the Moabite turns away. He has no hope in all the world of ever entering there and fellowshipping or worshiping God. In fact, it's interesting, brothers and sisters, that even today, if you go to Jerusalem, you will find out that there's a certain area of the temple ground where it is forbidden to Jews to ever walk there because it may be the area where the Holy of the Holies once stood. 
and no Jew would ever put his foot on the Holy of Holies. Therefore, there are big signs outside the gates of the temple that say Orthodox Jews have been forbidden by their rabbi to enter into this place lest they step on the Holy of Holies. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to shake his audience in understanding what they have in Christ Jesus. Do you not understand the immense privilege and immense opportunity that lies before you? We now have access to the holy place, to the very presence of God. Through a very high price, we enter by the blood of Jesus. You know, throughout the book, the author of Hebrews shows how Christ is better than Moses. That Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than all the prophets. And Christ is better than Joshua. And he implies that Christ is better than David. And Christ is better than Aaron. And Christ is better than all the priests. And Christ offered a better sacrifice than the other ones. He is a better priest of a better priesthood than the other one. And he offers a new covenant better than the other one. All the way from chapter 1 to chapter, to chapter 10 is a presentation of the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is superior beyond all. And so he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. See, the old road was a dead road. It wasn't a new and living way. It was an old and dead one. There wasn't any life there. It was just pointing towards the new road in Christ. See, under the old economy, you had to sacrifice an animal all the time, every day, all the time, over and over again. Jesus Christ was slain once, and his slaying is fresh, and still is fresh today, 2,000 years later, as it was the day it happened. His sacrifice is effectual for all of time, and thus it's spoken of as fresh. It's ever fresh because he's really the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. His sacrifice is always fresh. And for the man or woman who comes to Jesus Christ today, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is fresh because the Bible says through the Apostle Paul that the moment you're saved, you die with Christ. You are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, you live. And so in a, in a sense... Christ's crucifixion is just as fresh as the moment that you experience him. It is a fresh and it's a living way. But here's, here's a deeper truth. The writer says the veil is Christ's flesh. What's he saying there? He's saying this, as long as Christ stayed alive and as long as he was living, the way to God was barred. Even though he was telling mankind about God. And if he, if he spoke about God and if he remained alive and if his flesh was never torn on the cross, then that way was never open. But when the flesh of Jesus Christ was ripped asunder on, at the cross, the way to God was open. And so Christ's flesh in a very real sense veiled off God until it was rent. Do you see Christ? flesh was split 
the way to God was barred even though he was here. See, an un uncrucified Savior is no Savior at all. If Jesus just came into the world, talked a lot, said what he wanted us to do, and left, the way would still be barred. Christ needed to be crucified. And so Jesus had provided actual entrance into the presence of God. The reality had come. All the Old Testament things would fall away. There was no longer needed, you know, the, the practices of the past. And verse 21 says, having a priest over the house of God, he not only opened it up, but he became the high priest in the presence of God. He not only showed us the way, he took us in there with him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Christ has taken us into the most holy place before the presence of God. He has taken us there. He is the great high priest. And we have a restored fellowship with God for those who believe in the gospel of Jesus. And it's because of this restored fellowship with God that the writer says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, the cleansing through Jesus Christ's sacrifice has removed the barrier of a guilty and tormented conscience that prevented open and unhindered access to God. And the second phrase, having our bodies washed with pure waters, is closely associated with the first. You know, most commentators have taken the expression as an allusion to Christian baptism. It is regarded as the outward sign to the change of the inward heart. It is understood as the complementary aspects of Christian conversion. So we have a restored fellowship with God, and the writer states that we have a required fellowship to keep, which is with the family of God. And that's my second point for the day. We have a required fellowship to keep. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ creates a community like no other. It is in this community, community that true worship and fellowship occur. And it's a profound thought that the writer makes throughout the chapters. The gospel restores fellowship not only with God, but among believers as well. You know, if you remember Jesus' last supper, if you remember, you know, with his disciples, uh, it il illustrates that, that relationship between the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of fellowship. In the upper room, Jesus shared with his disciples what people would say, a sacred love feast. The hearts of the Lord and his, his disciples were, were knit together by such a deep sense of love and commitment. Later, the disciples discovered that their own hearts were strongly united out of their common loyalty to Jesus. Following the cross and, and the outpouring of the Spirit, the church was born, the new society of people in fellowship with God and with one another. We are asked by the author here to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We are urged, each one of us, I mean, it's, it's a mandate to each one of us to focus our minds and our energies on the needs of our fellow members in order to spur 
even provoke them to love and good deeds. We are to motivate one another to love that is expressed in good works. See, the writer is telling the converted Jews that they were all in danger of falling back. And he says, keep that fellowship going. Don't go back. You need each other. You need to love each other. You need to stir up. And then if you think of the picture of stirring up, it's not really sometimes a, a, a positive connotation. Think of a, a beaker of water and you got sand that settled at the, at the bottom and you stir it up. You're creating a disturbance that causes that dispersion. He says stir up. It's like provoke one another to love and, and to good works. It's kind of like kind of irritate one another to, 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 to love and good works. Because your common state is one which is opposite to that. <laughs> stimulate good works and stimulate love. These are things that go together in the Christian walk, love and good works. You see, the richness of, of fellowship among the first Christians is portrayed so clearly in the early chapters of Acts. You know, the believers met together daily in house groups for teaching fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. So profound was the sense of togetherness that what, what started happening? The Christians started pooling their own possessions and, and sharing it amongst each other. They distributed to the brothers and sisters in need. See, that was the dominant characteristic of the early church. Christian fellowship was the love among the believers. Scripture uses several images to describe the spirit of togetherness that characterized the early church. You see, you see phrases like the household of God the, or the household of faith. In God's household, love and hospitality are to be the rule. Further, the church is depicted as the family of God on earth. God is the father and believers are his faithful sons and daughters. And, and the family, the, the life of God's family is to be governed by love tenderness, compassion, and humility. You know, you see finally Christian fellowship is re represented as the one new man or the one body. You see, in, in spite great natural diversity, the Holy Spirit binds believers together into a single organism. In the fellowship of love, no believer is insignificant. Let me kind of go over that again. In the fellowship of love, no believer is insignificant. Each member has been endowed with gifts for the spiritual edification of the entire body. You know, Scripture lays down several guidelines for enhancing the communion of believers in the body. You know, we have Scripture that say, love one another with the same compassion that Christ displayed to his own. To his own. And the, the law of the, of the fellowship should be the rule of love. Cultivate that spirit of humility that seeks the other person's honor. Lighten fellow believers' load by bearing one another's burdens. Share material blessings with brothers and sisters in need. Tenderly correct a sinner while helping to find solutions to the problem. Assist a fellow believer in times of suffering and pray for one another. Pray for one another. See, there's a picture of how way back in the day, 
when coal was used to, to heat homes, um, this is way back, actually it's still done in Manitoba here, uh, they, they take coals, they heap it in the fireplace, they set it af- aflame, and as they prod at it, at times what tends to happen is you might have one coal that falls off the pile and sits there. And the moment it kind of falls to the side of the fireplace, it's got a, a glowing red shine to it, and it's, it's, it's in flames. But as time progresses, that the flames start to die off, that shine seems to disappear, and soon you have wisps of smoke coming from that coal that is apart from the rest, and soon that coal piece is cold enough for someone to pick up. See, there's a, the story here is we are to exhort one another, stir one another up, keep the fires of the Spirit burning brightly. We need to be kept close together so that Christian warmth can be communicated back and forth from one member of the fellowship to another. And when we stop fellowshipping and gathering with the rest of the saints, we soon begin to lose our fervor. We grow colder towards the things of God until at last for all the evidence there is of life, we are no different from the worldly, unsaved people around us. The Christian will want to seriously regard the saying of an anonymous saint. You cannot draw nigh to God if you are at a distance from your brother. It is a duty not just for the shepherds of the church, but every member. So ask yourself today, brothers and sisters, how have you in your life motivated another to love and to do good works? Think about it individually. We are all called to. You know, once I was, uh, there's this question that I think a lot of people get asked. Uh, you know, can I be a Christian without being part of a church? And I found this response online very entertaining. Uh, it says, oh yeah, it's, it, it goes like this. It's, it's like a student who will not go to school. It's like a soldier who will not join an army. A salesman with no customers. An explorer with no base camp. A seaman on a ship without a crew. A businessman on a deserted island an author without readers, a tuba player without an orchestra, a parent without a family, a football player without a team, a politician who's a hermit, a bee without a hive. I I believe you're getting the point here. You know, Ignatius, who is one of the apostles, uh, was one of the disciples of Apostle John, an early church father says this, when we frequently... And in numbers meet together, the powers of Satan are overthrown, and his mischief is neutralized by your like-mindedness in the faith. To neglect such assemblings together might end in apostasy at last. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, we need to have a discipline when it comes to fellowshipping with one another. Come to the meetings. Meet regularly. You know, Try to prioritize the, the, the gathering of the saints. You know, when you are busy with everything else, challenge yourself to say, how do I put first and foremost the gathering of the saints? How do I put first and foremost the family of God? And I think the challenge that we all face is we, we state it as the family of God, but do we treat it, the body of Christ as the family of God? And so I want to challenge you here. If you have put your family on a pedestal 
and the family of God is not in the same footing, if not higher, go forth and challenge that view. Throughout Scripture, we see the magnification, the exaltation of the body of Christ so much more than our human relationships. So I challenge you, put the family of God first. Secondly, as the author commends us, come seeking not to be encouraged, but to encourage. Let me elaborate. He says to all of us, let us consider how to stir up one another. Not let us consider how we're going to be encouraged. So when I come to a gathering, wherever it may be, with the fellowship, how do I en- enter that conversation? How do I enter that fellowship thinking of the other? How do I en- enter that conversation thinking about how do I stir up this brother or this sister to love and good works? Third is be vulnerable. Be vulnerable. You know, uh, we proclaim this for all have sinned and fallen short. We're all on the same you know, playing field. We ought to be vulnerable with one another, just as you would be with family. And if you're not vulnerable with family, be vulnerable. <laughs> God calls us to be vulnerable. You know, go beyond the, the superficial conversations. And fellowship is more than I'm just coming and I'm going to sit there and say I've, I've done my duty for the week. It means engaging actively thinking of the other. Now, the last one is don't get irked and show grace when a fellow brother or sister is trying to stir you up to love and to good works. Show them grace and don't get irked. They're just following what the Lord has commanded them to do. You know, um, in the fall of the year, Linda, a young woman, was traveling alone up the rutted and rugged highway from Alberta to the Yukon. Linda didn't know you don't travel to Whitehorse alone in a rundown Honda Civic. So she set off where only four-wheel drives normally venture. The first evening, she found a room in the mountains near a summit and asked for a 5 a.m. wake-up call so she could get an early start. She couldn't understand why the clerk looked surprised at the request, But she awoke to early morning fog shrouding the mountaintops, and then she understood. Not wanting to look foolish, she got up and went to breakfast. Two truckers invited Linda to join them, and since the place was so small, she felt obliged. Where are you headed? One of the truckers asked. White horse. In that little civic? No way. This pass is dangerous in weather like this. Well, I'm determined to try was Linda's gutsy, if not very informed response. Then I guess we're just going to have to hug you, the trucker suggested. Linda drew back. There's no way I'm going to let you hug or touch me. Not like that, the trucker chuckled. We'll put one truck in front of you and one in the rear. In that way, we'll get you through the mountains. All that foggy morning, Linda followed the two red dots in front of her and had the reassurance of a big escort behind as they made their way safely through the mountains. See, caught in the fog in our dangerous passage through life, we need to be hugged. 
with fellow Christians who know the way and can lead safely ahead of us and with others behind gently encouraging us along. We too can pass safely. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the reminder today of our restored fellowship with you. Oh, the beautiful restoration of our fellowship. The fact that we have complete access into your presence through your wonderful, beloved, kind son. Oh, Father, we thank you that your scripture paints such beautiful imagery that the veil that was torn asunder was the body of your beloved one so that we could have access. We thank you, O Lord, and we say, Father, forgive us if we don't understand the depth, the depth of what this access means. And Lord, as we are reminded, Lord, we, we hear you say that we have a required fellowship to keep within the body. We are called to stir up, to love one another, and so help us, God, to stir one another to love and to good works, to encourage one another, especially since the day is drawing near. And we are 2,000 years closer to that day. And so we pray, Father, may your spirit work in us. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from all evil. For we pray this in the most precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ.